Welcome back to Equity Unpacked, a podcast dedicated to simplifying the complicated world of equity compensation. I'm your host, Amy Reback from the Stock Plan Services team at Charles Schwab. Today, we're going international, and not just because we're all stuck at home yearning to travel. For stock plan administrators, granting awards to international, mobile, and global employees presents additional complexities versus domestic employees, and that in itself is worthy of a long-haul trip. As our guest today, we have the one and only Kate Gorey, Vice President of International Global Services here at Charles Schwab, and she'll help us navigate some of those ever-shifting sands admins and participants may encounter when it comes to equity awards and global investing. From Brexit to China, Kate is joining our journey today to help us unpack a few key topics. Kate, welcome to Equity Unpacked, and thanks for joining the show. Thanks, Amy. It's wonderful to be here, especially since we don't get to see each other in person. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Where to begin? I mean, we could do an entire series on all the themes that are swirling around on the international investing scene. But let's start with what issuers and plan administrators might need to consider on a foundational level. So if I'm a stock plan administrator building an equity award program for a global company, What are the current international employment and labor issues I need to consider? Well, you mentioned it in the introduction, Amy. I would be remiss if I didn't start with a very hot topic, which is Brexit. I think that's really one of the many uh, key international events that employers will be considering as they look at their hiring strategy, both for this year, but well into the future. There's some protections in the withdrawal agreement, which is the treaty that was signed between the UK and the EU last year that protect the status of UK citizens legally resident in an EU country or vice versa, EU residents that are living in the UK at the 1st of January, 2021. So each participant needs to really consider their own personal situation, uh, but most employees of an EU company that are UK citizens or vice versa should generally retain the right to work, access to healthcare, et cetera. At present, there's also a pathway for these individuals to gain permanent residence in those host countries. So if you've already resided continuously for five years or after you've done so, there's a pathway to gain permanent residence in that host country. So for existing employees in this situation, this will hopefully have a limited impact. The real open question that will take some time to resolve is the ability to work across borders for those who were not already resident outside their country of nationality on 30th December 2020. For new hiring, where previously European employers could source from across the UK and any other EU member state as the role warranted, it is unknown what, if any, provisions will be made allowing individuals to work across borders. Of course, Brexit is just one of the many trends that could impact where work is being performed. You also have my favorite topic, the emerging trend of digital nomads, which has really come about in response to COVID. Oh my gosh, digital nomads. I love it. Tell me some more. Well, I think we may see a shift in the way people work due to the impacts of the pandemic. When your home is your office, why can't your office be somewhere fun? So you see countries like Anguilla and Bermuda offering visas for expats to work remotely from their islands. With limited community transmission of COVID and sandy beaches, it is an alluring prospect. But with this new freedom, it'll require employers to take a hard look at the cross-border legal, regulatory, and tax framework that applies to these digital nomads. 
Personally, I'm just waiting for the day I'm invited to work remotely from Disneyland. (laughs) Disneyland. I know how much you love it there. I think you might need to invest in some military grade noise canceling headphones for that. But but we'll see. Let me know how that works out. Let's go go back to something you mentioned a minute ago. I'd like to explore your comment around data flows and Brexit. What can you tell us about GDPR post-Brexit? Well, the good news is for now, we expect data flows to continue. The EU GDPR requirements were already incorporated into UK law. And as of the 1st of January, the specific privacy regime post-Brexit is the Data Protection Act of 2018, affectionately called the UK GDPR. While UK organizations need to ensure their privacy programs align with the UK GDPR requirements, we don't really expect any immediate disruptions. Organizations that are operating on a cross-border basis, however, between the UK and EU, will need to ensure they're meeting both EU GDPR and UK GDPR requirements. Really, the major space to watch is a final adequacy decision. As we saw last July, when Schrems II was passed by the Court of Justice of the EU, and it declared that adequacy, previously provided for data flows between the EU and US, what was called Privacy Shield, was no longer valid. The concept of adequacy will be a critical topic for determining the ease of data flows between the UK and the EU. Recently, the EU released a draft adequacy decision, but it still has to be approved and it will need to be reviewed every four years to ensure that the UK has continued to meet those adequacy requirements. I'm really wondering if you were using air quotes around affectionately, but moving on, GDPR, Schrems 2, what does this really mean? I mean, fundamentally, what does this really mean for employers with international employees and their requirements regarding data privacy? Well, Chapter 5 of the GDPR talks about ways in which personal data of people living in the EU can be transferred to third countries, countries that aren't EU member states or EEA countries. Through an adequacy decision, the EU can declare that a third country like the U.S. and now the U.K., is adequately secure for data transfers. Countries like New Zealand and Japan were expressly determined to have suitable data protections in place so that data could flow from the EU into these countries, assuming the data transfer itself obviously is legal and meets other terms of GDPR. Previously, the adequacy decision for the U.S. in relation to the EU was specific to the U.S.-EU privacy shields. On the 16th of July, the ECJ declared privacy shield to be inadequate. In the ruling, they point to two key areas where U.S. laws did not provide sufficient protection to meet EU minimums. First, GDPR has a concept of necessity when it comes to all data sharing, even for sharing data with the state for things like surveillance programs. In the case of Privacy Shield, the courts found that the U.S. surveillance programs had too broad of a scope. The other aspect of the U.S. privacy rules that the court used to determine insufficient adequacy under Privacy Shield was the lack of effective redress for European data subjects. Okay, so so what are the options for employers and providers, for that matter, really, to remain compliant with this EU data privacy Well, Privacy Shield gets a lot of coverage because it and its predecessor were ultimately struck down in EU courts. However, there are several mechanisms of data transfer between the EU and a third country. Adequacy, which frankly, I think we've talked about enough for this podcast, but that's what Privacy Shield used to provide. Derogations, which are exemptions from the law, binding corporate rules, standard contractual clauses, certification methods, and codes of conduct. While I know this podcast is called Equity Impact, there's just too much, frankly, to unpack on each of these options. (laughs) 
In the absence of an adequacy decision between the EU and the country to which the data is being transferred, employers will need to consider how they're using the data, why they're transferring between the EU and this third country, and what other mechanism might be feasible and appropriate for their data privacy process. The EU has a great FAQ on this topic, which we'll link in the show notes for this episode. Terrific. Thanks for the resource tip. I know everybody will appreciate that. Let's pivot and talk about China. Kate, what's happening in China these days? Oh, just a, a few things, Amy. There's there's lots interesting happening in China. And I think that really begins with Schwab. We began a partnership with the Shanghai Advanced Institute of Finance at Zhao Tong University in 2016, where we really want to study China's rising affluent investors with an annual financial well-being index. And we launched that back in 2017. The Chinese rising affluent investors are a large yet really not well understood segment. And so we're really proud that this is our fourth year tracking such a growing, vibrant segment. Okay. So are there any key themes you're seeing? I mean, what trends really stand out for the emerging affluent in China? Well, this past year, we saw several key themes for the emerging affluent in China. We saw improved rates of financial planning and it really points to a growing awareness of the importance of being prepared for emergencies. We expect that financial wellness education would be meaningful to the employee base. A desire for cash and other low-risk products to respond to changes in circumstances was a, another critical theme. We've seen prevalent missed debt payments indicating vulnerability to unexpected financial challenges and underscoring the benefit of financial wellness resources to employees. Influence from social media, which could undermine the achievement of long-term financial well-being, and a greater financial literacy that can heighten focus on financial aspirations. Well, what about financial confidence? What have we seen in the past year, and is it changing? Well, despite the pandemic, uh, the rising affluent in China continue to increase their financial confidence. And it's underpinned by a faith in future prospects and a personal sense of financial preparedness. Specifically, and this is good news for those stock plan administrators, a job with stable income and stable family circumstances. Rather than the financial planning that we often think of in the U.S. as being critical to that financial confidence. Additionally, only 20% of the rising affluent answered basic financial literacy questions correctly, meaning that a focus on just those fundamental financial literacy topics with employees through the financial wellness solutions offered to them via equity awards and other programs will continue to be meaningful. Okay, great. Kate, as always, you bring such an incredible depth of knowledge for our stock plan administrators and employers. There's a clear reason you're a fan favorite. Now, I'm not done with you just yet, Kate, but before we swing into the last part of the show, I'm going to add one carry-on size note on the participant experience side, as that's always a hot topic for plan administrators and employers. As a provider, we get asked about the participant experience, particularly equity compensation education for international participants. So I'm going to quickly unpack a few things on the participant side. Let's think of equity awards like a vehicle, an actual vehicle. Let's say um, a red four-door, five-passenger sedan. You deliver a sedan as an award to a domestic employee in Ohio and the same exact sedan to an international employee in Bangladesh, let's say. Despite the difference in destination, the same 
red four-door, five-passenger sedan is received by each employee. So let's ditch the analogy and go back to actual equity awards. An international employee in Bangladesh and a domestic employee in Ohio both receive an RSU grant on the same day. The awards are the same, but the locations of the recipients are not. So what happens after they receive their awards will be different. For the employee in Bangladesh, they will be taxed at a different rate and possibly taxed even at a different time. The way they're allowed to interact with the broker-dealer that holds or custodies the award for them will be subject to the securities regulations in their country of residency and or citizenship or both. And the exchange rate for their native currency may impact the final value they receive, but ultimately the nature of the award they receive is the same, just like that red four-door five-passenger sedan. I mean, fundamentally, an RSU in Ohio is the same as an RSU in Bangladesh. I mentioned before, providers often receive requests for specialized education for their international participants on equity awards. But remember, the awards themselves that are granted to those international employees, again, in the vast majority of cases, are no different than those granted to domestic employees. In other words, if the domestic participant from Ohio and the international participant from Bangladesh both come to me as a provider and ask, what is an RSU or what is an ISO? The answer for both is the same. The answers to fundamental equity compensation questions addressed by participant education program do not change based on where the participant lives, and it's simply table stakes for any provider to offer at least fundamental participant education. However, there's a catch. The type of education and support most often requested by international participants is not usually related to the securities business. The most common questions participants ask, international participants that is, are things like, how and when will I be taxed on the award? And will the exchange rate for my country impact the value if and when I sell? Now, as you can imagine, trying to address those very individual personal questions from participants just isn't possible in a group setting, in a workshop or a, you know, an education forum, because every single one will be different. And they become increasingly complex when dealing with not just global, but mobile employees. I've been to a number of education workshops with international participants, and I'll never forget getting this one question from an attendee. I wrote it down, actually. He asked, I'm a citizen of France. My permanent residence is in Singapore. I spent three months in Shanghai, six months between Ireland and the U.S., and I've been in the U.K. on assignment for the last eight weeks. What will the tax implication be for my equity awards? Now, I know that may seem like an egregious example, but trust me, that level of complexity is very common with these international employee populations. They are important, but really tough and individualized conversations that really need to be addressed by a local and appropriately licensed tax expert or accountant that can customize the response to meet the need of each unique participant. And many, many employers, not all, but many employers create partnerships with international tax consulting firms that do just that for their participants. 
So there it is, the burning questions about how to support the greatest needs of international participants unpacked. Okay, Kate, digression over, back to our original agenda. Let's close out this episode with a lightning round. I have three questions. Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. All right. First, I'll ask you to sum it up for us. What are the top three global dynamics that employers and participants should be aware of that have potential to change the game for equity comp? Well, the first that I really think about is social media. Social media and other digital means of communication really close that gap that may have previously existed between employees in the company's home country of the U.S. and employees that are working in other locations. We saw from the study I mentioned earlier with the Shanghai Advanced Institute of Finance that influence from social media can actually undermine individuals' long-term financial well-being. The second thing to consider is financial wellness solutions. As you were mentioning, Amy, and as we've talked about We see emerging affluent not only in China, but in a number of countries in which U.S. companies have employees. And we will likely see a continued demand for financial literacy be part of that solution when people are offered equity awards. And the last one, not to take us all the way back to the beginning with Brexit, Schrems 2, and GDPR, but it's data privacy. We've talked about it a lot in the EU context, but I think really data privacy is an important space to keep an eye on, regardless of where your employees and your consumers are located, whether it's GDPR, Privacy Shield, and standard contractual clauses, or the recent data privacy updates in places like Brazil, China, and India. A number of countries are reviewing how their residents' personal data is used and shared across borders. Companies need to be aware of these emerging changes, both for their own data transmissions as well as those of their service providers. Okay, so tell us, what's the number one question regarding international or global policies that have an impact to markets and investments that you typically get from your business partners? Well, you are one of my business partners, and it's probably not a great way to get invited back to the podcast. But the number one question I get is, why is it so complicated? And my answer disagrees just slightly with the uh, carry-on-size topic that you just unpacked for the audience. My answer is honestly that it's not inherently complicated. The, The rules in any one jurisdiction aren't any more complicated than dealing with all of the rules in the U.S. It's just that when you're working on a global basis, you could be asking about the rules in over 200 different jurisdictions. And so there's a lot of different rules at play versus just the single set of U.S. rules. But we cannot ignore the fact that we now see more multinational companies than ever, and especially multinational companies offering equity awards to their employees outside the U.S. And so in order to be able to best support our clients, corporate and retail, we have to have a robust program to understand the rules of jurisdictions in which we do business and the differences between those jurisdictions and the U.S. rules. I'm a problem solver at heart. So what others might see as complexity, I honestly just see as a fun puzzle to put together. Well, well, thank goodness for that. And finally, quite possibly the most difficult to answer after 2020, what's been your favorite way to escape since we've all been working from home and on lockdown? Well, Amy, I have a toddler who received a trampoline for Christmas. (laughs) I'm just grateful my escape hasn't been multiple trips to the emergency department. Yeah, we're all grateful for that. Well, Kate, as usual, you have been just such a great wealth of knowledge, and I'm so grateful you were here today to help us unpack the rather nebulous and, of course, ever-changing international landscape. Thanks so much for sharing your time and your knowledge with us today. 
Thanks, Amy. This has been a ton of fun. Thanks again, Kate. And thanks very much to all of our listeners. I hope you'll join us for our next journey on Equity Unpacked. Until then, safe travels. Subscribe to our podcast and visit schwab.com slash equity unpacked. For important disclosures, see the show notes or visit schwab.com slash equity unpacked.